The rain had already been falling for several days, and already large puddles were beginning to form around the giant ark that Noah had constructed. He'd already done God's bidding and packed the ark full of animals of all kinds, two by two, as instructed. He sealed the hatch of the ark and ventured to the observation deck where he was greeted with a terrifying sight. A massive tidal wave coming right at him, hundreds of feet high, destroying everything in its path. God had not warned him of this, though it did make sense, considering this flood was supposed to be global. He went back below deck and braced himself with his family as the tidal wave rushed toward him with a single purpose. Sweep the earth and destroy every trace of humanity. Welcome to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. It's good to be back. We're going to be talking today about Noah's Flood, the biblical story of Noah and the great world-ending flood where God cleansed the earth of all the evil of all these people. We're going to talk about that. But, you know, we're not just going to tell the story of Noah. I'm going to do a little bit more of an analysis here because this is uh, is really interesting to me when I started looking into this, when I started going on a little bit of a faith journey, trying to figure out what I believe And I got pretty deep here. So we're going to talk about that today. And not only tell the story of Noah's flood, which, you know, isn't, you know, there's not much of a story in terms of a podcast. It it is what it is. But there's more there. And it's something that I feel like needs to be talked about a little bit more because there's something really interesting happening with um, the narrative of Noah's flood in terms of its relation to cultures around the world telling the same story in a little bit of different ways. So we're going to talk about that. But before we get started, remember, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, wherever. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. It helps us get other people involved with the conversation surrounding history, helps me get more listeners, and that means the world to me. Um, And leave me a note if you feel so inclined. Let me know why you enjoy the podcast. But, you know... I'm not going to waste any more of your time talking about all that. Let's get right into this. We've got a lot to talk about today. So, without further ado, Noah's Flood. Now, quick warning before we start that I am going to get really obnoxiously excited in this episode because this is one of my favorite things to talk about and not necessarily Noah's Flood, but some of the stuff I'm going to talk about in this episode is some of my favorite stuff in the world to talk about. So I'm going to get obnoxiously excited. And so I'm just warning you now. So anyway, let's, let's talk. So today, because the Old Testament is pretty much the most read book on the planet, and, and I'm not just saying that, I'm, Christianity is the most popular religion on the planet, plus 15 million Jews who are reading the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the story of Noah's Ark is one of the most well-known stories in the world. I mean, Noah also shows up in the Islamic Quran, where the same story is told. It's, it's a representation of the power and authority of the Judeo-Christian God in his dominion over the earth and a demonstration of what Christians often call, quote-unquote, righteous anger. It's also a warning to civilizations around the world not, become, not to become too self-indulgent and prideful, lest God or the gods flood the world and you're not ready for it. Now, I've seen comments across the internet constantly of 
people trying to discount the story of Noah's flood. I've had friends saying it, co-workers saying it's impossible for the entire earth to be flooded. It was probably just a river overflowing and flooding a city or like Moses made it up or some crazy doomsday guy built a boat and put a bunch of animals on it, wrote himself into history. And you know, these are all plausible explanations for the origin of the story. But I've been on my own journey of faith, and I've sp I spend lots of time wondering if everything I've ever been taught is complete malarkey. But I got really curious when I started going deeper into the research of the story of Noah's flood, trying to figure out the basis of it, and I discovered that Moses isn't the only one who talked about a world-ending flood that wipes out most of humanity. And the deeper I dove the more prevalent this ancestral memory became. And, and it wasn't just found in one nearby culture. Like, you know, I mean, Moses wasn't ended up in Israel and there might have been a culture nearby who had the same theory. No, no, no. That, I mean, yeah, but also it, it was found in dozens of ancient cultures and not just nearby. I mean, we're talking like Egypt and then Thailand, and then Korea, and then the Philippines. There's some in Australia, Finland, Ireland, Native American tribes in North America, the Aztecs in Mexico, Peru, even in Hawaii. There are these, there are these ancient world-ending flood myths in nearly every ancestral culture you can find in the world, where the entire earth is flooded and very few survived. And, and after I studied this, I needed to know where these myths came from and what similarities they all held. Ultimately, why do they all seem to have so many common threads? What does that say about our history as a species? Is there so much more to us than we currently understand? So let's, I mean, let's start, we got to start somewhere. So let's start at the story of Noah. And most of us know about the story in some amount of detail, like God created the earth and the people, but then the people became so wicked that God wanted to start over. I mean, depending on what, what, uh, what type you read, there were, uh, the Nephilim, which were like fallen angels and they were mating with mortals and they were creating this bastard race of giants. And so God wanted that wiped off the earth. It just depends on what, which one you want to read. But anyway, God wanted to flood the entire earth to kill everybody off and restart. But Noah followed God, and so God had Noah build an ark and put a bunch of animals in, two by two, so not all the animals on the earth would die. And then it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Everybody dies. The highest mountains are covered with water. And then after 150 days, Noah sends a dove out, and the dove eventually comes back with an olive branch. So they land the ark on a mountain. Depending on who you talk to, it could be Mount Ararat in uh, Turkey. And then they repopulate the earth. God gives Noah a rainbow as a promise. He'll never flood the earth again. That's the story. Basically. Now, it's a pretty crazy story, to be certain, but there are a lot of crazy stories in the Bible. But really quick, let's bring up our first comparison, the Epic of Gilgamesh. What is the Epic of Gilgamesh? The Epic of Gilgamesh is an epic poem from ancient Mesopotamia. The literary history of Gilgamesh begins with five Sumerian poems about Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, dating from the third dynasty of Ur, which is around 2100 BC. The first surviving version of this combined epic, known as the Old Babylonian version, dates back to the 18th century BC and is titled after its incipit, Shutur el-Shari, surpassing all other kings. That's not important. But the epic follows the man Gilgamesh as he goes through a series of great trials in life as the gods send challenges to him to prove his worth. It's likely the oldest written story ever recovered. 
The epic is regarded as the foundational work in religion and the tradition of heroic sagas, with Gilgamesh forming the prototype for later heroes like Hercules, and the epic itself serving as an influence for the Homeric epics. <laughs> Any historians you who are worth their salt will tell you that it's hard to compare the stories of Gilgamesh and Noah because they seem to have been written for very different reasons. The story of Noah and the Flood is a story of a, of a godly favored man being advised by God to build an ark to save humanity and all other living things when God destroys all life on earth. Well, the story of the Flood in the Epic of Gilgamesh is actually a story told to Gilgamesh by another character in the story, Utnapishtim, as Utnapishtim relays to Gilgamesh how he became immortal, but it bears striking similarity to the story of Noah and the ark. So what are the similarities? Well, here we go. In both stories... A divine being, or beings, became angered with the state of humanity. A single person was chosen to preserve life with a large boat called an ark. That person was given specific measurements for the ark. They both had seven days to construct the ark. They both were only allowed to bring their own household into the ark when the floods came. In both stories, the ark rested on a mountain when the rain stopped. In both stories, the main character releases a bird three times, the bird coming back twice, finding no land, but coming, but not coming back a third time. So, I mean, come on. Those are some striking similarities between these stories, and it could be easy to posit that the story of Noah's Ark, traditionally held to have been written by Moses, could be a retelling of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written down over 400 years before Moses was born. See, the Epic of Gilgamesh was written down on stone tablets over the course of hundreds of years, and the oldest tablets have been dated to ancient Sumer during the dynasty of Ur around 2100 BC. A second round of tablets have been dated to around 1800 BC, while the newest tablets were compiled between 1300 and 1000 BC, but those are largely just editions of the same story written down uh, on newer tablets. But what was ancient Sumer? Sumer is the earliest known civilization in the historical region of southern Mesopotamia, which is south-central Iraq. Emerging during the Chalcolithic and the Early Bronze Ages between the 6th and 5th millennium BC, it's one of the cradles of civilization in the world, along with ancient Egypt, Elam, and the Karl Soup civilization, Mesoamerica, and the Indus Valley civilization, and ancient China. But living in the valleys of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, Sumerian farmers grew an abundance of grain and other crops, the surplus from which enabled them to form urban settlements. Proto-writing dates back before 3000 BC. The earliest texts come from the cities of Uruk and Jemdit Nazir to date between 3500 and 3000 BC. So basically, Sumer is the earliest place where we see a written language. So anyway, that's why Sumer is important to know about. But the fact that the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the earliest known narratives in history, lines up with the story of Noah's Ark so well brings up another question. Why did someone feel the need to carve the story into stone? Well, the Epic of Gilgamesh is the story of a man overcoming evil to prove himself to the gods. The story presents a few central themes. Don't be self-centered. Love your family and friends. Life is fragile. And the gods are powerful and dangerous. So it's speculated that the reason the story was written down, or rather, carved down, is because it became the moral basis for the Sumerian civilization. This is reinforced by the fact that in 2100 BC, Sumerian was not a language spoken by the common man in Sumer anymore. 
I mean, Sumer was conquered by the Akkadian Empire in 2270 BC, and the Sumerian language was superseded by the Akkadian language, which, I mean, the Akkadians required that you speak Akkadian when you're in Akkadia. And so, kind of Sumerian and Akkadian started to mesh at this point. But the Epic of Gilgamesh was inscribed as late as 1800 BC in pure Sumerian script. But why is that important? Well, because the Sumerian language was kind of similar to what the Latin language is to the Catholic Church. It's technically a dead language. People don't speak it, but it is used in sacred rites. Sumerian was the same. So when the Epic of Gilgamesh shows up in Sumerian writing after the Sumerian language had supposedly become defunct, I mean, we're talking 400 years after, uh, it makes sense to believe that it was used as a moral code. And the story of Noah's Ark demonstrates the same story positing many of the same morals. Take care of your family. God is dangerous. Life is fragile. So maybe Moses heard the story of the Epic of Gilgamesh and wrote it and wrote down a slightly altered version as part of the Judeo-Christian creation story. But there's a problem there. Moses was raised in ancient Egypt, a long way from Sumer. And long after Sumer had become Babylonia and Hammurabi's code had taken the place of the Epic of Gilgamesh. I mean, sure, he led his people into the desert where they went through Sinai for years and years and eventually found themselves in Israel and Palestine. But he spent most of that time away from civilization before he started writing the first five books of the Christian Bible and the Jewish Torah. I mean, there is a possibility that he was influenced by the Sumerian story, but, but he ended up a long way from ancient Sumer and again... Sumer had long been conquered by then. So, at this point in my research, I started thinking, okay, there's three possibilities. One, the story of Noah's Ark and the Epic of Gilgamesh are the same true story written by two different people. Two, the Epic of Gilgamesh is a fictional tale written to establish a moral code in ancient Sumer, and Moses heard it somehow and used the basis of the story to write the story of Noah's Ark. Three, the books were not written by Moses at all, as many historians pose, and instead were a collection of stories written by many scholars and priests through the 1st and 2nd millennium BC, with the Epic of Gilgamesh finding its way into these stories from traders and other religious missionaries. And at this point in my research, I considered it a pretty open and shut thing. I, I thought I'd figured out that if Noah's flood was real, it was based off the Epic of Gilgamesh. It only made sense. And if it wasn't real, it was based on the Epic of Gilgamesh. So that's where I was at. Then I stumbled on some new info. So there's this ancient Aztec myth. And you know, the Aztecs living in Central America. And this myth can be corroborated by ancient Aztec carvings. And it's the story of a man named Nota and his wife. See, Aztec legend has it that one of the Aztec gods spoke to Nota and told him to hollow out a large tree. And Noda asked why, and the god said, I believe the god was Viracocha. And Viracocha says, the whole world is about to flood. So, Noda took his wife and stepped into a hollowed out tree, and the entire earth flooded, killing everyone. Only he survived, and he and his wife became the, became the ancestors for the Toltec and Aztec civilizations. And the similarity here is that Noda was warned by one of the gods that a flood was coming, and only he and his wife survived to repopulate the earth. But another similarity is that a dove shows up on the, Aztec, on the ancient Aztec carvings, hovering over Noda and his wife floating on a raging sea. And where else does a dove show up? 
specifically in both the story of Noah's Flood and the Epic of Gilgamesh. And this got me really thinking. I mean, I could reason my way into believing Noah's Flood and the Epic of Gilgamesh were the same story, and maybe both were made up, but for a story like this, archaeologically pinpointed to be thousands of years older than the Epic of Gilgamesh, to exist quite literally on the other side of the globe with so many similarities to these stories, I mean, that opened up the case. I gotta know more. So this led me to the story of Unupachacuti. Unupachacuti is an ancient legend in Peru from the Inca people. And in this legend, the god Vira... Oh, that's where I was thinking Viracocha. Nope. Viracocha is Incan. He's not Aztec. My bad. That's where we're at. Okay, anyway. Uh, the god Viracocha destroyed unruly humanity with a flood, saving two to repopulate the world who survived the flood in a wooden box. Angry god? Check. Flood? Check. Two people to repopulate? Check. Wooden raft to survive the flood? Check. In Hopi tribe mythology, on the plains and deserts of Southwest America, we live in the fourth world, because the first three were akin to trial runs by the gods. And in the creation myth of the Hopi tribe, the third world was destroyed by Tawa, the creator, and a righteous few were saved in hollowed out reeds by spider grandmother, Tawa's assistant, to enter into the fourth world, and the, and the world was destroyed by what? A flood. Creator destroys earth with a flood? Check. Righteous few, saved by the grace of a god? Check. So I kept digging. This was getting weird for me. So it led me to the Philippines. And legend has it in the Philippines that one year, when the rainy season should have come, it did not. And so the rivers dried up. So when the river dried up, the people started digging into the dry riverbed, hoping to find the soul of the river. And then they hit a spring. But hitting the spring angered the river gods. So it began to rain, and the river overflowed its banks. The resulting flood wiped out all of humanity, save for two survivors, Wigan and Boogan, who repopulated the earth once the waters receded. So, angry gods? Check. Flood? Check. Wiping out humanity and saving two? Check. Then we jumped over to Hawaii. In pre-colonial Hawaii, before any European or Christian missionary showed up, an ancient legend told of a man named Nuu, who built an ark to survive a great flood. He took his wife and three sons and they boarded a raft with a house on top and survived the deluge, landing on a mountain and beginning to repopulate the earth. In this tale, the Hawaiian creator god Cain descends on a rainbow to explain to Nuu what has happened. And where else does a rainbow show up? In the story of Noah's Ark, as a promise from God never to flood the earth again. Destruction of all humanity? Check. Flood? Check. Ark? Check. Divine power? Check. Even a place as western as Wales in Britain has a deeply rooted folklore based in Celtic lore before, and before any Christian missionaries ever showed up. And according to the Welsh Triads, which is a collection of all known Welsh folklore, an enormous lake-dwelling creature called the Afanc caused an enormous flood that destroyed the entire island of Britain, except two smart cookies named Dwiffin and Dwiffic. Dwiffin and Dwiffic built an ark, populated it with male and female of every animal, using them to repopulate the island of Britain after the waters receded. So, flood, check. Ark, check. Two of every kind to repopulate. Check. Let's keep going. In the Mandingo tribe on the Ivory Coast in Africa, an oral tradition continues where a wealthy man gave away everything he owned to help others, while his selfish neighbors made fun of him. 
unknowingly, he gave his last meal to a god in disguise, and in reward, the god made him rich beyond his wildest dreams. But then the god advised him to leave for six months. And when he returned, he found that everyone in the city he'd lived in had been destroyed by a flood, with only him being saved due to his selflessness. And all humanity is now descended from that man. Flood, check. Humanity descended from the only survivor, check. Let's keep it going. In Hindu mythology, the whole human race became corrupt except for one prince. One day, when he was bathing in a river, he was visited by a fish, which the prince recognized as the god Vishnu, the lord of the universe. Vishnu told him that in seven days, remember, seven days, all the corrupt creatures will be destroyed by a deluge, but the prince would be saved in a large vessel. He was told to take aboard the miraculous vessel all kinds of medicinal herbs, food grains, the seven nishis, which were some other righteous men, and their wives, and pairs of brute animals. After seven days, the oceans began to overflow the coasts, and constant rain began flooding the earth. The large vessel floated on the rising, on the rising waters, and during the deluge, Vishnu preserved the ark by again taking the form of a giant fish and tying the ark to himself with a, uh, with a huge sea serpent. When the water subsided, he slew the demon who had stolen the holy books and communicated their contents to the prince. Corrupt humanity? Check. Flood? Check. Warning from a deity? Check. Destruction of everyone? Check. Ark? Check. Two of every kind to repopulate? Check. I literally could stop here, but there's like more. There's like a lot more. So we're going to keep going. The Lisu people in Yunnan, China, maintain that in ancient times, two children, a boy and a girl, were warned by a pair of birds that a great flood was coming and they must saw the top off of a gourd and crawl inside to escape it, not coming out until they heard birds calling. The children tried to warn the people, but they would not listen, so the children cut the top off of a gourd and crawled inside when the rain began. They stayed inside, as the gourd tossed upon the waves, occasionally hearing it bump against the bottom of heaven, until they heard birds singing. They opened the top of the gourd to find that they'd landed on a mountaintop. Hmm, where else... Did people land on a mountaintop? When the boy and the girl were grown, they had six sons and six daughters, which scattered across the land to become the ancestors of all modern races. Let's see. Celestial warning? Check. Flood? Check. Two survivors, male and female? Check. At this point, at this point in my research, it was simply too glaring to ignore. No skeptic could deny that the similarities between all of these ancient tales was simply uncanny. A global flood, an angry deity, two survivors on a wooden raft or an ark of some kind, from Sumer to the Philippines to North, Central, and South America to Britain to Hawaii to India and China. The same story seemed to just keep popping up everywhere I looked in one way or another. I could keep listing off places. I, I mean, literally, they literally go on almost forever. But instead, I wanted to understand where these myths came from and why they were so similar. Dozens of cultures separated by thousands of years, thousands of miles, mountain ranges, oceans, scorching deserts, and yet they were all passing down what is virtually the same story. It was at this point that I concluded that the flood must have been real. One of the arguments against the credibility of an actual worldwide flood taking place is that these stories are based on localized floods that were kind of blown out of proportion with oral histories, which we talked about back in our Mansa Musa episode. But for all of these societies to be telling virtually the same story of a great flood that wiped out all of humanity, I've come to the conclusion that these stories 
must all be rooted in the same ancestral memory. What is ancestral memory? Ancestral memory, or genetic memory, is a theorized phenomenon in which certain kinds of memories can be inherited, being present at birth in the absence of any associated sensory experience, and that such memories could be incorporated into the genome over large spans of time. Proponents of the theories surrounding ancestral memories point to things as common as the fear of heights, the fear of open water despite the ability to swim, the fear of the dark as examples of ancestral memory presenting itself. Other theories include an aversion to a food that most people enjoy without explanation, certain smells triggering a fight-or-flight response without explanation, or the ability for children to learn their ancestral language more efficiently than foreign languages. The consensus among scientists is that all humans are born with only two fears, a fear of falling and a fear of loud noises. All other fears are learned. So when someone presents a fear outside of these two fears without previous stimuli in their life to cause that fear... It's possible that this is a presentation of ancestral memory. Now, before everybody freaks out, I have some evidence to back up the possibility of this. Think of it this way. According to the human consensus behind our human evolution, which, mind you, I do find flaw with, civilization began around 10,000 BC in the Fertile Crescent in Kuwait and Iraq and Mesopotamia, those areas, with the invention of farming and the transition from nomadic hunter-gatherer societies to settled civilizations. The Epic of Gilgamesh. Remember, the first known written narrative, not the first known writing, but the first known written narrative, was written down in 2100 BC at the earliest. At the earliest. Meaning it was almost 8,000 years after the first civilization settled down. So that means that, like, there, there are 8,000 years that could be virtually unaccounted for in human history after civilization began, not counting... Not counting the tens of thousands of years that took place after modern humans formed hunter-gatherer societies. All we have from that time are the oral traditions. That and we have megalithic sites. A megalith is a large stone that has been used to construct a prehistoric structure or monument either alone or together with other stones. There are over 35,000 megaliths in Europe alone, located widely from Sweden to the Mediterranean Sea. The earliest known megalithic site dates to 9000 BC. There are megalithic sites literally everywhere. The oldest that, well, the oldest that we know of, that we oldest that we can potentially date, which also carbon dating is not an exact science, and so we can't actually say, oh yeah, we absolutely know that this was at this time. Anyway, the oldest Gobekli Tepe, which is one of my favorites, is in eastern Turkey and is particularly interesting, as its discovery rewrote pretty much everything we thought we knew about ancient societies, because... Gobekli Tepe is a prehistoric site unlike any other. It's presumed to have been a religious site that was built steadily over a thousand years or more before being deliberately covered up around 8000 BC. The site consists of numerous stone circles with T-shaped pillars inside each circle, the pillars being adorned with intricate carvings of all manner of animals, some of which are not even native to the area, and three humans, two men and one woman. So there are a couple interesting things here. First, most of the pillars weigh close to 50 tons, or 100,000 pounds. For reference, the standard car weighs about 2 tons. So the, so the stones weigh as much as 25 cars. And according to our current understanding of human history, which again, I find flaw with, these stones were moved by people who had just barely learned how to farm. 
And when I have a grip on written language for the least for at least 5,000 more years, do we know who built it? No, they disappeared, and we don't know what happened to them. Stonehenge. In Britain, the earliest carbon dates, again, not an exact science, on Stonehenge go back to 8,000 BC, before construction continued around 3,100 BC. That's 5,000 years of lost history. Who started Stonehenge? Why did they stop? We don't know. They disappeared. And we don't know why. Gunung Padang in Indonesia, an ancient temple built into the mountainside over a mile above sea level, covered with hexagonal volcanic stones weighing thousands of pounds, each hauled from miles away, estimates originally placing the construction at around 40 BC, but now, foundations of the temple could go back as far as 20,000 BC. Who built it? Why? We don't know. They disappeared without a hint of explanation as to why. Stone circles underwater off the coast of Israel dating back to 7,000 BC. Stones weighing over a thousand pounds each. The Karnak stones in Brittany. Literally hundreds of standing stones all over northwestern France. Some weighing upwards of 50 tons, all arranged in alignments that match constellations in the sky. Adam's Calendar, South Africa. Collection of 4,000 to 20,000 stones meticulously placed over a huge area. The stones weighing over 1,000 pounds each. Erosion patterns denoting that these stones could be well over 20,000 years old after they were placed. We don't know how these stones got there, but according to our understanding of history, they were moved there by people who had not yet invented the wheel. All of them disappearing after constructing this stuff without any hint of where they went. <sighs> What I'm getting at here is that these megalithic structures are all over the place, and they don't make sense when juxtaposed with our current linear understanding of human history. So what happened to all of these people? Where did they go? It doesn't make sense that they just put all this stuff down and then vanished. Now there's one more piece of evidence I want to present to back up my hypothesis. There's a scientific consensus that the last ice age ended 11,700 years ago, about 9,700 BC-ish, and the earth warmed up super rapidly, which is around the same time the Neolithic Revolution took place and people start farming. There are a lot of theories about why, after 2.7 million years, the ice age finally came to an end, but the one that rings most true to me has been very controversial as of late. It's called the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. Now we need to talk about the Younger Dryas and we also need to talk about the Impact Hypothesis. And the Younger Dryas, which, you know, occurred between 12,900 to 11,700 years ago, was a return to glacial conditions which temporarily reversed the gradual climactic warming after the last glacial maximum, which lasted from around 27,000 to 20,000 years ago. That's a lot of jargon, but all you need to know is that the earth got cold again. But the Younger Dryas was the last stage of the Pleistocene epoch and preceded the current warmer Holocene epoch. The Younger Dryas was the most severe and longest lasting of several interruptions to the warming of Earth's climate. That's what you need to know. The change was sudden, taking place in decades or less, and it resulted in a decline of temperatures in Greenland by 7 to 18 degrees Fahrenheit, and advances of glaciers and drier conditions over most of temperate the temperate northern hemisphere. A number of theories have been put forward about the case, and the most widely supported by scientists is that the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, 
which transports warm water from the equator toward the North Pole, was interrupted by an influx of fresh cold water from North America into the Atlantic. Now, again, a lot of jargon there. Basically, people think that there was a bunch of water that suddenly showed up from North America and spilled into the Atlantic and it reversed a couple currents and it caused the Earth to cool down. Now, the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis posits that the Younger Dryas was caused by a comet fracturing and impacting the Earth, causing a sudden, drastic heating of the Earth, followed by a prolonged geological winter before the Earth returned to stasis around 10,000 BC. Now, before I go into this, I want to make it clear that this is just a hypothesis. Nothing is set in stone regarding this theory. But that being said... It seems plausible to me as a college student studying history who took one geology class in high school. There's a lot of backlash from the scientific establishment surrounding this hypothesis, which they deem to be completely bogus, but when any established authority calls a new idea complete bogus, I tend to get really curious about it. So, my understanding of the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis is as follows. A comet hits the Earth around... 10,000 BC, 10,700 BC-ish, kind of that area, fragmenting and impacting several areas of the planet. The resulting fallout leads to extensive fires and big old tidal waves, ultimately shifting Earth's climate dramatically, leading to another very brief global cooling and ultimately the restabilization of Earth's climate after several hundred years as the new ice caps melt. Now, here's the important part. Since the temperature had changed so rapidly, these ice caps held large aquifers of liquid water beneath them, and when they melted enough, these aquifers were rapidly released into the ocean, causing the global sea levels to rise dramatically and suddenly. Anyone near these floods would see a cascade of water miles high before they were wiped off the face of the earth. Millions of square miles of land could have been swallowed up by the ocean in days or weeks. Atlantis, anyone? Now, I have con some contextual evidence for this. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, it reads, quote, Then the gods of the abyss rose up. Nurgle pulled out the dams of the nether waters. Ninurta, the warlord, threw down the dikes. And the seven judges of hell, the Anunnaki, raised their torches, lighting the land with their livid flame. A stupor of despair went up to heaven when the god of the storm turned daylight to darkness when he smashed the land like a cup. Now, let's see. Pulling out the dams and throwing down the dikes doesn't sound like a flood caused by mere rain. And lighting the land with livid flame, turning daylight to darkness, smashing the land like a cup? Hmm... This lines up with the story of Noah's Ark in the King James Bible, Genesis chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. Now, all the fountains of the great deep broken up, hmm. Windows of heaven, rain, sure, but the fountains of the great deep... Now, also remember that in the story, in Noah's story, it rained for 40 days and the land was covered by water for 150 days in the Genesis narrative. That doesn't make any scientific sense. Unless something else was the reason the land was so flooded. According to Aztec legend, the water and the sky drew near to each other and in a single day, all was lost. 
Remember that most of the ice sheets were over North America, near where the Aztecs were. Very curious. If this is correct, if this is what really happened, which I see as a distinct possibility, the global flood would have likely destroyed most human coastal life, as the sea levels would rise virtually 400 feet in a matter of days. It could provide the answers for why all of the constructors of these megalithic sites seem to just vanish. It could explain why 8,000 years of civilized history have been lost. That begs the question, though. Is what we know about the beginning of civilization wrong? Could there have been civilizations before the Great Flood? All of these stories seem to point to the idea that there were large numbers of prideful people before the Flood that needed to be destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. And if these Flood myths are accurate, just how many people needed to be destroyed? What could they have left behind? And if the flood was as destructive as theories say it could have been, could it have truly destroyed all traces of civilization other than these strange megalithic structures with no explanation? Now, obviously, a comet impact doesn't answer all these questions. And I am of the belief that nothing's ever going to answer all these questions, but I'm going to, I mean, obviously I'm going to keep looking, but I do firmly believe that the fact that nearly every culture worldwide carries some sort of global flood myth where two people survive the wrath of angry gods is simply too coincidental to be founded in someone's imagination. I believe the global biblical flood of Noah did happen. And even though it may not have been exactly as described in the book of Genesis, I truly believe that there was a catastrophic flood that covered most of the earth. How it happened is up for debate, but I believe that it absolutely did take place. Now I know that I've been kind of meandering around this since I started this since I started this particular episode. I know that some of the stuff that I've said kind of contradicts contradicts itself, but there's enough evidence here that I feel like I can say with a lot of surety that this global flood did take place, that we all carry it in our ancestral memory, and that these flood myths are so prevalent in every society because deep down we all know that this really did happen. Maybe it didn't flood the entire planet. Seemed to have flooded a lot of it. Case closed. Boy, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this one, aren't I? I'm sure a lot of you are saying, like, this is the dumbest episode I've ever heard in my entire life. And anybody who knows anything about geology is probably saying, Tanner, you are literally the dumbest person. And we're here to talk about history, not your understanding of Earth patterns and asteroids and celestial events and things like that. And you know what? You are absolutely right. I have no base. I have no jurisdiction to be talking about anything like that. But... I'm just talking about how some of this stuff does make sense to me, and it could be a very solid reason. That's why we don't know freaking anything about our history as a human being. So anyway, remember, if you enjoy the podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. It means the world to me. And without further ado, I will catch you all next time. Hopefully next week. We'll see. My life's about to get really, really busy, so if I don't release, if I don't release as many episodes as usual... That's why, is because my life is just absolutely insane. But anyway, thank you all for listening. 
I'll catch you next time. <laughs>